Trump had the big lie. We will never give up. We will never concede. Now, investigators in Congress are televising what they might call the big truth. There's a new role in Hollywood, the cultural consultant, looking to make the industry more politically correct. The Kremlin's propagandists have a few friends in Italian TV. They're making the most of it. And it's Pride Month. We have some reading recommendations for those of you who want to know more. Hello, I'm Meenakshi Ravi, and this is The Listening Post, where we cover global events through the prism of the media. What does it take to capture a nation's attention? In a time of multiple crises, the Russo-Ukraine war, soaring inflation, gun violence, the climate catastrophe, how can people be brought together to focus on another big issue? The investigation into the storming of the US Capitol on January the 6th, 2021 a riot by supporters of former President Donald Trump intent on overturning the results of the election. In America, it would seem that nothing makes an impact quite like a TV drama. And so the Jan 6th Congressional Committee has broken up the hearings into a six-part series, with the opening and closing episodes airing in prime time. The committee is in a battle for hearts and minds. Opposing them is a right-wing media machine led by the Fox News Network. The channel's hosts have called the hearings a sham, pushing an alternative narrative in which Trump and his supporters are the victims. Will these made-for-TV hearings break through to enough of the American public? Our starting point this week is Washington, D.C. It's taken hard work to get Americans to care about the January 6th hearings. It should have been enough that this is a congressional investigation into what was a shocking moment for democracy in the United States a physical assault by supporters of former President Donald Trump on the U.S. Capitol on January the 6th, 2021, just weeks after Joe Biden won the election. Compelling and urgent as this investigation is, Are you out of your mind? It has required the skill of TV producers, hired by the Congressional Committee, to package the hearings into something that Americans will watch and hopefully engage with. They know that the biggest medium for them is TV. And the fact that they have brought a former TV executive in also shows how they want this to go. Usually with congressional hearings, they are uncovering the facts in real time. And they're learning from live testimony about how certain events went down. Here, the January 6th committee has been doing an investigation for 11 months. They're trying to present it in a way that is compelling in narrative form to the American public and to the world. You know, in America, we have a problem, which is our country is, is deeply divided, but we also have a problem, which is that people in this country have a very short attention span. You see committee hearings in Congress that can be very, very long, you know, hours and hours and hours. So one of the things that they've done, which I think is quite smart with these committee hearings, is they're two hours long, right? So it's very short. And then they're cut up in little bits that then the committee has a Twitter account that tweets out. One of the most interesting things is that the committee has really tried to demonstrate that this is not just a democratic attack on Republicans, but rather this is both parties coming together, thinking about the attack on the Constitution and the country. President Trump believed his supporters at the Capitol, and I quote, we're doing what they should be doing. The second thing is that they managed to get primetime coverage. The seat of democracy attacked 
Was there a conspiracy to overthrow an election? That's a big hurdle to overcome because you need to demonstrate a substantial amount of newsworthiness just to get the networks and the cable channels to break into their regular programming to give you two hours of prime time to cover it. Those two hours in prime time, when TV viewership across the U.S. spikes, were given to opening night, the first in the series of six televised hearings. It was a scene setter for what was to follow. The story was laid out. Some of the characters were introduced, including witnesses and people from Trump's inner circle. Evidently, the investigating committee had worked out that if a case was to be built against a reality TV president, they needed to flex some TV muscle as well. After all, they had to push back against the big lie, Trump's narrative about a stolen election. You know, I ran twice, and we won twice, and we did better the second time. The reason the big lie has been so effective is that it tells Trump's supporters exactly what they want to hear. He's been telling them that essentially every election has been stolen, that they are you know, being held captive by a media elite, by a political elite, by a business elite that does not care about them, and the fact that they're being robbed every day. Can these people be convinced otherwise? I think this is one of the great questions. Certainly there's a part of the Trump base that I'm not sure would ever listen to anything, right? Though there's a group that has hardened into almost a religious organization. I don't think you can get those people with a few hearings. But luckily you don't need to get those people. I mean, that group is not ever going to believe that Trump did anything wrong. I think it's being stolen. That segment of the American population is not insignificant. These are Republican voters who bought into what Trump offered as president and what he continues to peddle in his avatar as a jilted leader in exile. Trump's message is boosted by a right-wing media ecosystem that ballooned during his time in office. It includes the vast landscape of talk radio, websites like Breitbart and Newsmax, an upstart cable network called One America News. At the very top of this edifice is Rupert Murdoch's Fox News, the country's most watched cable news channel. It's all theater, it's a circus, it's a political witch hunt, and they know it because... While Fox joined the rest of the American cable networks and ran the daytime hearings, it pointedly did not carry the primetime broadcast on the very first night. That slot was reserved for the network's top talent. It is a made-for-TV smear campaign against President Trump featuring sliced and diced video. Well, people like Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity on Fox News, you know, they've always attacked this committee as illegitimate, that it's a witch hunt going after Trump to make sure that he's not on the ballot in 2024. The counter-programming always focuses on the procedure. They never focus on the facts of what the select committee has uncovered. There was not really, except for some details, a speck of news in what they, the committee presented the other day. They are going after the process. And I think that's a very telling indication of the fact that they have, they are struggling to counter effectively the truth. Tucker Carlson is the real insidious one here. He's the one that's claiming that it is part of some conspiracy between Democrats and the news media. Why are the news networks colluding with a political party to tell us this is the most important thing? He's even gone so far as to say that the FBI was the one that uh, attacked the Capitol, not the public, right? How many federal agents were there on January 6th? Why can't we know? And the point of that is to, similar to the big lie, 
you seed the ground with alternative narratives so that different segments of the audience will believe the thing that's most relevant to them. You're giving people something to amplify, something to walk away with and tell their friends, and you're giving them the tools necessary to attack the committee themselves. The January 6th investigators are unlikely to have harbored any real hopes of breaking through to the Trumpist right. And ultimately, that is probably not even the biggest prize they are seeking at the end of this exercise. All the efforts invested in making these hearings watchable are aimed at more than just the ordinary American citizen. The select committee is trying to appeal to two audiences because one has a direct implication on the other. The first is, of course, the American public. But the other audience is the Justice Department, who now have to decide, based on the strength of the evidence, whether Trump, beyond a reasonable doubt, committed crimes as he sought to overturn the 2020 election. And that's really key because part of the job in informing the public is also to build public pressure on the Justice Department that could force a potential investigation or a criminal indictment against the former president. To bear the truth about the wide range of illegal, unethical, or improper activities. Nearly 50 years ago, another hearing into criminal conduct by a president of the United States went out on American airwaves. It was the Watergate investigation, and by the end of it, President Richard Nixon, found unarguably guilty of illegal activities, resigned. For the January 6th investigators, achieving that sort of public and political consensus will be a near impossible task. So I would say that with Watergate, um, you had a totally different country, right? You had a country that was much less hardened into partisanism. Do you think the president should be impeached? Yes, sir, I do. I can't trust him. And so when Republicans went to Nixon and told him it was time to resign, people sort of just went along with it. And I think that Americans were a little more interested in what was right back then and uh, not winning. There's another crucial difference between these hearings and the Watergate hearings, because when the Watergate hearings were happening, there were four networks in America. There wasn't this huge uh, system that, that could create immediate counter-programming. And, you know, what we have now, I think, is, is a very different media environment. And that just, you know, it makes it very hard for anything to break through. You know, during Watergate, Republicans changed their minds during those hearings. They went from supporting Nixon to opposing Nixon. They approached it with an open mind. That's not the case anymore. The reason we are seeing this increase, this cauldron of extremism and lies and this bloggerheads in our politics and this decay in our civil society is because misinformation and disinformation work. And so to me, my big takeaway in watching all of this is that we got away with it barely. But if we don't get a more finely calibrated approach to addressing the threat of misinformation and disinformation, we will not get a second chance. Since the invasion of Ukraine, the reach of Russian state media across Europe has been severely restricted. There is one country, though, Italy, where supporters and spokespersons of President Vladimir Putin are still getting a pretty easy ride. Tarek Nafa has more. Mina, since the war began, Italians have been seeing a lot of Kremlin mouthpieces being given a platform on the air. So often that one Italian paper has dubbed these pundits the Putiniani, or Putinists. Why do you think that you are free and we are not? 
They include Vladimir Solovyov, one of the most influential and notorious propagandists on Russian TV, and Nadana Friedrichsen, a host on Zvezda, which is run by Russia's Ministry of Defense. The issue isn't that these people are invited to speak, it's that they often go completely unchallenged. In one TV moment that went viral last week, La bellezza del Cremlino. Italian journalist Massimo Giletti hosted his show from Moscow's Red Square. The program featured long interviews with Maria Zakharova, Russia's foreign ministry spokeswoman, and Solovyov, both of whom were softballed by Giletti. It was all too much for one commentator, Alessandro Salusti, who got up and left in the middle of the show. Asservimento totale alla più those kinds of debates, which are heavy on conflict but light on journalism, are a product of a media environment shaped by former Italian Prime Minister and media mogul Silvio Berlusconi, who incidentally was a close friend of Putin's. His TV network, Mediaset, is a frequent host of pro-Kremlin voices and clearly they're not the only ones. The Kremlin has spent years cultivating relationships with populist and anti-establishment voices. Those relationships are paying off now that Russia finds itself isolated in Europe. Thanks, Tarek. Encanto, Eternals, Ms. Marvel, what do these three have in common? Yes, Disney, but there's something else. These recent films and TV series made diversity and representation a key aspect of their production and have all relied on a new role that's revolutionizing Hollywood, the cultural consultant. Movements like Me Too, Black Lives Matter and Stop Asian Hate have helped shift mainstream consciousness around issues of social justice and cultural consultants are the people tasked with helping Hollywood get with the program. They're brought on to production teams to help provide insights that might otherwise be lacking in predominantly white and Western writers' rooms. They raise red flags on everything and anything from gender to ethnicity. The listening posts flow Phillips now on the role of cultural consultants. Are they really helping make Hollywood a better place or are they a substitute for real change? Describe how you first met. Uh, it, was, uh, it was in Colombia. Pogata. It's 2005, and Mr. and Mrs. Smith is a box office hit, grossing more than $50 million in its opening weekend alone. There's an helicopter arriving to Bogota. Like, doo -doo 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 -doo. And it's only like a rural area with a lot of bombs, like boom. Bah! Boom! Bogota, Colombia. For Edna Liliana Valencia Morillo, a Colombian, it smacked of stereotypes and cliches. And then Avir and someone looks like Pablo Escobar, something like that. And then Mr. and Mrs. Smith trying to, uh, you know, uh, fight against the criminal people in Colombia. And that's the thing about Hollywood. Since its creation more than a hundred years ago, it's been making movies for audiences that are a reflection of itself, Western and white. Some of the most, you know, kind of canonical films have featured very problematic representations of particular groups. One really uh, key example was Breakfast at Tiffany's, where Mickey Rooney was a white actor, played a very, very racist stereotype 
of a Chinese person. Don't be angry, you dear little man. I won't do it again. In recent times, I can't help but think of Hollywood's depiction of the Middle East. Go on outside. Ben Affleck's Argo is a depiction of Iran made by people who have never been to Iran. There are a lot of TV shows and a lot of films that have not aged well. I'm the man up in this piece. You'll never see the light of the In the way that black communities in America have been impacted, in the way that we talk about law enforcement, in the way that we talk about violence and drugs. When you think about Asian American communities, when you talk about things like sexuality and desirability. I didn't order anything. Not even you. When you talk about women and you talk about women being in roles and in positions where they're not empowered and it's sort of reinforcing this idea that that gender disparity between men and women. When we think about the entertainment industry, there hasn't really been a focus on the cultural sensitivity. That's changing. As movie junkies, the people who actually sit through the closing credits will tell you, there's a new category scrolling by, the cultural consultant. Hollywood has been using outside expertise for years. In The Exorcist, the part of the priest was played by a former priest. There were real-life pilots in the 9-11-based film United 93. And when it comes to war, the so-called military entertainment complex, Department of Defense officials have been brought in to help produce Pentagon propaganda hundreds of times. Good morning, aviators. With social movements like Me Too and Black Lives Matter forcing a reckoning in the United States and beyond, a demand for a different kind of expertise has emerged. What time is it? And realizing their time really is up, Hollywood, an industry that is slow to change, has started signing contracts with cultural consultants. The cultural consultant's role inside of Hollywood is to really help the creators ensure that what they're doing is actually going to be productive for the cultures that are being represented. And it's not going to inadvertently cause people harm or going to further sort of focus in on tropes or stereotypes. And it's become a whole industry in itself. Ray Nijan is one of the founders of Culture House, a New York-based production company run by and for cultural consultants. Their services span the gamut of production from casting to marketing, providing holistic support to storytellers out to challenge the dominant narratives in the media. What we're doing is that we are sort of the aggregators, and we sort of are able to support them and say, okay, if you want to be thinking about this community, let's really look at the cast of characters that you're putting together. Let's really help you to consult and talk with the right folks to make sure that those characters feel really authentic to the time and to the place. Nijun is talking about someone like Valencia Morillo, who, as an Afro-Colombian, has experienced racism and discrimination in one of Latin America's most class-ridden societies. That resulting experience is what made her valuable to the producers of Disney's recent hit, Encanto. I was part of the team of uh, cultural trust uh, for, that Walt Disney create to help them to represent Colombia in, the, in a better way. I was in charge of the representation of black people in the movie. Representation is not a easy thing to do, but black representation is even more difficult because we used to see black people from the stereotype of poverty or slavery or being ugly, for example, bad hair, that kind of concepts. 
cultural consulting was to put in the table how the diversity of black culture in Colombia can be represented from um, a perspective of dignity, that's very important to me, and also with um, the possibility to inspire new generations. You're impressed, imagine how I feel, Mom. I grew up admiring princesses of Walt Disney and feeling myself ugly, you know? So to me, this is amazing that I helped them to understand why Afro hair was so important to be in the movie. Got every generation. It's the first time you see Afro hairs in a Walt Disney movie. And it's the first time you see the 12 textures of hair in the 12 members of the family Madrigal. Cultural consulting, to me, is taking into account the vision of how a population sees themselves. We are trying to avoid that kind of view of, the, of describing a population from outside and not having the point of view of the people inside. At this year's award ceremonies, the film industry's annual celebrations of itself encounter one big. It's part of a growing collection of film and TV series that have put representation at their core. You're the girl with the deaf family? Take Coda, the Oscar-winning film about a hearing child in an otherwise deaf family. We've been around since there was uh, footage. You just have to look for us. Disclosure, the Netflix original that looks at transgender depictions within Hollywood. Or... Marvel's first live-action Muslim superhero, Ms. Marvel. All signs of progress. But for others from these communities working in the industry, cultural consultancy is like a band-aid, a giant one, covering up a problem that runs deep. The idea is not for us as consultants to come in and now larger organizations or corporations can say, see, we have diversity. No, no, no. Cultural consultants are there to support a writer's room, and often that writer's room, regardless of whether there's cultural consultants or not, has to be incredibly diverse. That is a completely separate consideration. And if anything, so much of what we've learned and seen is that there are many writers' room where you have a couple of black folks or queer folks or brown folks, and every time a storyline around one of those communities comes up, everyone looks at that person like, hey, Tell us what the black community thinks. That's not fair. For me, in order to make a positive step, at least, and it will only ever be a step, culture industries need to do better in terms of making their organisations more representative of society at large. So what I would rather ensure is a parity of participation, if you like, that everyone, no matter their background, has an opportunity to create stories on a mass scale which can be shared with everyone, with a wide range of audiences. For me, that is the bigger issue. And if we get that right, we won't need cultural consultants. That role would be redundant. Hollywood's not there yet, so the next time you watch a film and you're not offended, maybe stick around for a few minutes and consult the credits for the reason why. Staying with representation, we're in June, marked around the world as Pride Month, a celebration of LGBTQ plus people, their identities, histories, and their fight for equal rights. For us, it's an opportunity to share some resources, specific journalists and outlets that cover the broad spectrum of stories and issues in the queer community. 
Openly is a Twitter account and news website run by the Thomson Reuters Foundation, providing a mix of original reporting as well as aggregation. Queer Majority publishes writing that ranges from reflective to reportage. They also put out cartoons and poetry. Their mission, they say, is to create a space for nuanced and productive dialogue. In Malaysia, where LGBTQ people face social and legal discrimination, Queer Lapis is a one-stop shop for news articles, opinion pieces, even recipes. Rompiendo El Silencio is an advocacy organization working for the rights of lesbian and bisexual women in Chile. Their Twitter feed is a real resource for queer news and information across Latin America. Welcome to Gender Appeal, a podcast where we hopefully get a little bit closer to understanding what the hell gender is. Gender Reveal is a podcast that produces interviews with transgender people from around the world, and it also puts out educational episodes for those who are trying to get their heads around the politics of gender. A few people to check out on Twitter are Cassandra Roxburgh from South Africa, who does in-depth reporting on trans issues and experiences. There's San Francisco-based Afghan writer Nemat Sadat, whose focus is the queer community in his home country. And finally, activist Javid Nabiev, who helped organize Azerbaijan's first Pride event in years and whose feed has nuggets of information about LGBTQ rights across the South Caucasus region. Those are just a few suggestions on how LGBTQ communities are reported and represented around the world. We'll see you next time here at the Listening Post.